Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy, where we talk about things that are important to you, the men and women of the United States Border Patrol, your families, and those we serve. Today, we have a very special guest. We have the Deputy Chief of the United States Border Patrol, my good friend, Mr. Raul Ortiz. Sir, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chief Owens. It's been uh, already a very educational experience halfway through the day. They say they only work 14 hours here in Artesia, so I'm looking forward to the rest of it. It's been, uh, it's always fun coming out here because it takes us back to whenever we went through the academy. We get to see how some of the things have changed. So it's been just shy of 30 years for you. You joined, was it May? May of 1991. So 30 years coming up. How much has the academy changed? Yeah, they say uh, that COVID sort of, uh, forces people to have a bit, bit of a fog in memory. And I think I had COVID back in <laughs> January, February of this year. So, you know, trying to re- remember 29 plus years ago exactly what I went through in, in Glencoe, Georgia, it, it has been uh, a bit of an eye-opening experience to see all these uh, young agents, you know, going through the process. Um, you know, I can recall getting a call back in February of 91, saying that, hey, you're slated to go to the 247th session in May 13th of 1991. And I thought, all right, let's try this. You know, coming out of the military and uh, having spent a a couple years in college after I got out of the service. And uh, I said, you know, I'm looking for a calling. And so let's see what this Border Patrol has to offer. And I'll tell you, Initially, when I went in, I thought that it would be a, a good job. I thought it would be something that certainly would help my family. But I never thought of it as, you know, a career that I would do for the next 30 years. And so as I sit here and reflect of what, what's, what's transpired over the last 29-plus years, I can tell you it has been one heck of a ride. So uh, I've enjoyed it, and, and like I said, watching, uh, you know, the different curriculum and and the training that goes on here in Artesia certainly reminds me that, you know, we put a lot into this and as an organization and as individuals. And I I see those those results. And so uh, I'm excited about what you and your team are doing here. And I'm awfully excited to see these young agents out in the field because we need them. So when you put it like that, it makes sense. The training's evolved. It's changed. It's fair to say it's gotten better. I know from when I went through, I feel like uh, leaps and bounds better uh, what the job that's being done here today. But it changes because the job has changed. And the job has changed because the environment has changed. It is a much different place along the border. It's a much different country than it was 30 years ago. And so what we've been asked to step up and do, no longer just immigration under the old INS, Department of Justice, we are now a border security and national security agency with the Department of Homeland Security. That That's a huge change from when we came in. Yeah, no, you, you're exactly right. I can recall, you know, 1991 when I got to San Diego and, and got off the bus there and um, was looking around thinking, what did I get myself into? Of course, in 91, San Diego was sort of the center of the universe when it came to border security and uh, busiest place in the country. And uh, coming from West Texas to Southern California, I thought, wow, I'm going to experience some things. 
How, about, but, how, about a, how big of a change was that for you going oh, from Texas you know, to— So, yeah, I haven't served in the military and, and, and gone. To, I went to school in San Antonio at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Um, the, the community wasn't all that different, but um, what we were experiencing along the border was much different. You know, I grew up in a very remote area in Del Rio, Texas, and, and you know, my, my life experiences were centered around South Texas— and so San Diego, very heavily populated on both sides of the border, and it was busy nonstop from sunup to sundown. It was always busy. And that's that's a great point because we hear about the caravans and the surges, you know, 2014 with the unaccompanied children and the family units, and then a few years later we have a, a surge again and possibly looking at another one coming up here in the, in the, in the very near future. But that's been the life of the Border Patrol. In the 90s, San Diego was extremely busy. You guys were catching, you know, thousands of people in a shift. And it's a different kind of uh, work that was being done because they weren't turning themselves into you. You were having to actually chase them down for the most part. But this idea of having uh, mass crossings of the border between the ports of entry is is really nothing new. No, it isn't. And, you know, back when I started, the Border Patrol um, was really the only organization that cared about Border Patrol. I mean, you know, when you looked left and right at, at your fellow agents, that's who you were there to take care of. You know, I don't I think most of America didn't think about border security much, you know, unless you lived on a, in a border community. And so it wasn't really until 9-11 did, did our, our mission set change as drastically and become as prominent amongst uh, most of Americans. But prior to that, you know, in California, uh, as you described, we were it was nonstop, and at some point you had to turn it off, and then you had to check yourself and make sure that you did have uh, you were prepared to do it again the next day because it was going to be the same, the same thing. thing. Yep. And um, I, I will tell you that the experiences and the foundation of being busy in the early '90s really set the stage for my ability to be able to manage some of the crisis that you described in 2014 in Rio Grande Valley, 2019, uh, certainly what's happening right now. And people would always ask me, hey, you know, you don't look like you ever get too spun up about things. I said, well, as leaders and, and, and professionals, law enforcement professionals, I think people expect us not to panic. And, and so those of us who were able to manage crisis or, or you know, issues that, that are ongoing on a daily basis, you know, if, if you deal with it in, in a business-like manner with some humanity, I think that really sets the stage for success, you know, and success is going to be dictated by the folks who write the history books later on down the line. And I hope when people reflect back on how we managed 2014, 19, and, and even the early 90s, that people are going to say, Wow, those folks did a pretty good job with what they had. Because, yeah. you know, we're not fully resourced as an organization. We don't have enough agents. We don't have enough equipment. We don't have enough facilities, on and on and on. And so uh, I think overall, uh, as an agency, we've done a fair job, you know, over the last 96-plus years. Uh, and we continue to, to, to get better at what we do. And I've heard you say it more than once. That, uh, you talk about yeah, we don't have enough equipment. We don't have enough infrastructure. We don't have enough technology. More than that, we don't have enough good men and women out there doing the job. And I hear you say it all the time, that's the most important cog in the wheel. The men and women going out there and do the job. Everything else really just supports what they're out there doing. 
it makes it safer for them, and it makes it uh, where they can be more effective at doing the job. And you know better than most people because where I met you was at uh, 2013, I think it was, in the Rio Grande Valley, right when everything started getting extremely busy there. And you have led through one crisis after the other, no matter where you've been. Yeah, some people say I like to chase the crisis, but that's not entirely accurate. I'd like to put it behind me at some point. <laughs> but I will tell you this, that, you know, we do, we do it as a team. You know, I've been very fortunate to have tremendous teammates everywhere I go. You know, when I started moving up into the leadership ranks in about 1998 in San Diego as a first-line supervisor up to the position I'm in now, I've always had really good partners um, some of them are no longer with us. Uh, and being able to lean on somebody when things are getting tough is very, very helpful. Um, you know, fortunately right now up, up in Washington, D.C., you know, we've got Chief Scott, you know, at the helm, and, and we've got a tremendous executives team. And then out in the field, we've got some of the best chiefs and deputies that I've seen ever, you know, uh, assembled and they're doing a tremendous job of managing not just this COVID environment, but increased in numbers, the political strife that goes on out there, civil unrest, and all. I mean, we're spinning multiple plates at any given time. And so to, to know that, you know, we don't have to be on every every day. You know, we can have a day where we're not at 100%, but our fellow agents, fellow leaders out in the field are going to be able to pick us up. And, 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 you know, as the chief and I are able to read through issue papers, we live vicariously through the field and we see a good rescue or, or seizure or an event or something that happens. And then we're able to call those agents. And we do it quite often, to be honest with you, and, and tell them, hey, thank you for what you're doing out there because it makes a difference. It means something to a family who's able to get a loved one back or we're keeping, you know, bad things off the street so, it, you know, our kids aren't introduced to narcotics or whatever it is. You know, those are the types of things that keep us going, I think, at the end of the day. And so um, it has been an investment in people. But it also, I, I think, as you see and, and watch people, you know, come into some of these leadership positions uh, throughout their careers, it, it is, uh, uh, from from my perspective, to watch from the sidelines some uh, some of our future leaders of this outfit become, you know, PICs and chiefs and deputies and whatnot, uh, it's exciting to know that I had a hand or vested uh, interest in, in helping those folks become successful. Kind of helps you know that you're uh, you're leaving the organization, the family in good hands whenever yeah. it does come our time to move on. You know that they're going to uh, pick up the baton and carry it even further. Yeah, I, I, I make that comment quite often. I called one of the chiefs the other day and asked him if he wanted the, the headquarters deputy chief baton, and he said no. He said no, I'll take my field baton. But, you know, it is it is certainly refreshing to know that we have folks always willing to step in and step up into some of these roles, and, and they do it day in and day out. Now, you talked about COVID, and that kind of, as a frontline agency, we usually have the threat standing in front of us, and we're, we're taking it head on. The COVID environment has caused something completely different for us. It's an unseen enemy, and it is impacting not only our operations, but our entire family. We've lost a lot of people this year because of COVID. And it just, uh, there, I think there's a sense of fatigue probably nationwide. Everybody is just, they're over this uh, the, this virus, and, and we've got to find the you know the vaccine and, and, and get the, the process in place to keep everybody safe. And, and it feels like just when you think, okay, maybe it's not that big a deal, and then it hits close to home. It's somebody you know. 
uh, and dies because of it. Yeah, no, you're you're spot on. Over this last week, I've had three friends that uh, have lost their lives to COVID, and, and certainly tore it at, at my heartstrings. But you know, so I showed up to Washington D.C. I think February, March of this year. Of course, COVID hits the second week of March, and and so initially we started dealing with everything we were do we would normally deal with in a border environment plus COVID. And one of the things that I challenged myself early on, and I told you this story, is that I said I was going to call every employee that, that uh, you know, succumbed, that had COVID, whether it was, you know, uh, a, a phone call a week after they recovered or whatever. And so I did that, and I had a list. My adjutant was bringing me a list every day, and then the list started getting bigger and bigger. And then I got to about, I want to say, th- maybe 300 phone calls, and I said, I can't keep this up. And so, um, you know, I stopped doing it and I wish I could have, but it it was just a little bit, a bit of a daunting task for us to maintain that. But we still monitored, right? We we started monitoring every person that was in the hospital. Uh, Of course, we lost, you know, three Border Patrol agents and one contractor to COVID and then several, you know, members of our OFO team, Air Marine team, you name it. And so, um, you know, every single one of those, as you described, man, took a toll on, on the organization. And I look at the numbers. I'm a numbers guy. I fancy myself a, a person who follows metrics and data. And, you know, every day I would look at, you know, um, we've got 800 people in quarantine status, 1,000 people in quarantine status. And just two days ago, I think we had almost just at, right at 500. And I was like, oh, man, we're, we're making some headway. And then I started thinking to myself, Oh man, we got 500 people in quarantine mm-hmm. status still right now. That's 500 folks that are off the battlefield that aren't out out there able to do this border security mission, and that hurts. That hurts us with in Tucson, El Paso, Rio Grande Valley, you name it, wherever we're at. And so, um, as you described, there isn't anybody in the South that doesn't know somebody who's either gotten really sick or died from COVID. And so, we are working hard to get vaccines out to our workforce to do everything we can to support our team members who who have become sick. But the only thing that that I do want to stress is in those 300 calls, in in those uh, times that I have had gone to a funeral out there, I will tell you the appreciation of the family members for the support that the Border Patrol has provided to them in their time of need has been just amazing. And to hear, you know, the different accounts from individuals talking about, I don't know that I would have made it without, you know, the peer support, the chaplaincy program, the uh, resiliency programs that we have in place. And so if you're part of those teams out there, or if you were the recipient of some of those services, please, one, say thank you. And for those of you who are out there doing that work, God bless you, because it really has made a huge difference for us. No, and that's a great point. We, we, most of us, myself included, probably don't think about those programs enough until you need them. And man, when you need them and they're there, they are worth their weight in gold. And you think about the folks that no extra pay. They just they do it because they care, because they want to. It's a, it's an extra duty that they take on. They're they're all border patrol agents. They're still going out there and doing the job every single day. But they do this extra duty because they care. And that is one of the things that makes this outfit so special. No, you're right. So let me talk about the. Uh, 
deputy chief of the Border Patrol right now, but uh, let me rattle off just a couple things. First off, Class 247, as you said, and I ask this of everybody, you remember your class chant? I tell you about the fog. <laughs> 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, something like 247, we're the best, something to the rest, I don't know. So I guess you didn't come up with it. No, I did not. <laughs> fair enough, fair I, enough. I didn't become a wordsmith till about uh, 2013 when I had to. When you had no choice. Yeah. All right. Well, the uh, started off in San Diego and just say uh, you, you moved around within the sector. You went to Chula Vista, you went to Brownfield, you went to Campo. Uh, then you went over to Del Rio sector, and you have been everything from a first-line soup to a then what was called an assistant patrol agent in charge, now is a deputy patrol agent in charge. You've been a patrol agent in charge. You've been an assistant chief. And then you took a slightly different route than most people take. 2009, the director of the Border Management Task Force, senior advisor to the DHS envoy in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And oh, by the way, you were also the DHS attache in Kabul, Afghanistan. Most people don't think about the fact that the United States Border Patrol, as part of CBP, is a global entity. Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, that was my left of, of bang experience, uh, you know, my career. I was an assistant chief in Del Rio, Texas, and I, I don't know that I had plateaued out, but I was, you know, feeling like I, I probably wasn't getting as much accomplished as I would like in, in my personal life and organizationally. And I remember a memo came out and said, hey, we're looking for volunteers to go to Afghanistan. And I was talking to a fellow assistant chief, a good friend of mine, Mark Rios, and he was an assistant chief in Tucson at the time. And I said, hey, uh, I'm thinking about putting in for this Afghanistan. Do you see that? He goes, yeah, I did see it. He goes, uh, we both ought to put in for it. Maybe we'll both go. We started out in San Diego together. It'd be cool to reunite with somebody that I'd worked with back in the day. And so... Uh, Fast forward a couple months, I, I call them up and I said, hey, I got a call that, you know, they're going to interview me for, for that position. Did you get a call? He goes, what are you talking about? And I said, for the Afghanistan job. He said, no, I went back and had a conversation with my wife. She said, there's no way I'm putting in for Afghanistan. I'm like, well, it would have been nice if you would have told me, buddy. She goes, he goes, I'll sleep with you. And so, you know, <laughs> fast forward, I, I interviewed for the gig and, and I get it. And I hadn't had any overseas experience. I'd been in the military, spent a couple of years in Germany when I was in the service, but I'd never been overseas with the Border Patrol. And so I go over there, and um, I am the director of the Border Management Task Force. I've got a bunch of military guys, some contractors. I've got uh, one CBP employee with me who's with the Office of Field Operations. And I get this mission set that I'm trying to put my arms around, and it really is just a matter of capacity building in a host country. But you're in the middle of a war, by the way. And so um, most people who work overseas, typically after their first time, they get bit by a bug. And once you get bit by that bug, boy, you can't shake it. And so I know, Chief, you've done uh, some overseas uh, assignments on multiple different occasions. I said, so I went and did a little less than a year. I came back. And they asked me to, to become a, a, a senior advisor for the Department of Homeland Security over at the State Department, a gentleman by the name of Richard Holbrook, who I have tremendous respect for. He passed away uh, about five years ago, probably longer than that, eight years ago now in December. And, um, you know, for me, that was a pivotal moment in my career. I think we all have those at some point 
where you're like, okay, I, there's more out there. And so that set the stage for future assignments. Uh, as you described, I went over as a DHS attache for a year, which was a senior executive position. I was one of many of five SESs in the world uh, for DHS and had tremendous experiences. I mean, I was sitting, you know, at the same table with General McChrystal, General Petraeus, you know, uh, ambassadors and, and, you know, certainly got to meet presidents and brief, you know, secretaries all the time. Secretary Napolitano knew me by first name and we traveled together and whatnot. And so um, once that happened, I knew that there was so much more that I that I could contribute uh, to our mission set. And it really did, I think, sort of pave the way to where I'm at now. Uh, I think without having experienced those overseas assignments, uh, I probably wouldn't be in the position I'm in now. And I will just, you know, if, if I could, if you ever find yourself out there and you're a Border Patrol agent or even a professional staff member and, and you feel like, hey, I'm in a bit of a rut or I'm not having as much traction in my career, change it up, right? You own that more than anybody. You know, challenge yourself, take a risk, take a chance because it, it might surprise you. At the uh, end. That's that's great advice. Uh, and I tell you, my, my experience overseas was a little bit different than yours because mine was on the ground. Uh, yeah, I didn't get a chance to, to meet the secretaries or dignitaries or be a dignitary myself, yeah. but I can tell you that bug is exactly right. You, you yeah. get over there and, and the job and what you're doing, the people you're interacting with is who gets to do that. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, again, most people I don't think know that that is part of the mission of CBP and certainly the Border Patrol. Talk about the type of work that a person typically will do if they go on an OCONUS, an outside the continental United States uh, assignment. Yeah, it, it could be, you know, the, the, the list is huge. You know, we stood up an academy over in Afghanistan, but I've, I've had the opportunity to go down to Honduras and look at some of the capacity we're doing down there, building vetted teams with our specialty units, uh, deploying people to work in intel or, or information gathering assignments in, in some of these foreign offices, or just going uh, to an embassy and becoming a CBP attache or DHS attache. And, and it really is an opportunity because so few embassies really know what the Border Patrol does. Right. They know a little bit about DHS. They know probably a lot more about CBP, but they know very little about the Border Patrol. So it really is an opportunity for us to put our stamp on a mission that exists out there. And all we're doing is pushing our borders out. And so when you think about if I can go to Iraq and train Iraqi border guards on how to do a better job of patrolling their border, or if I can go you know, do some capacity building in Egypt or Turkey, you name it, right? The list goes on and on and on. Why wouldn't you take advantage of putting yourself in a position where, one, you can influence our borders before they're right at our doorstep, and two, you know, it, it's, it's going to be life-changing for yourself. It's going to allow you to experience something that normally you're only able to experience if you're in the military or you're in the Foreign Service Corps or perhaps maybe one of these other law enforcement agencies. But, you know, the work that I did... Is wasn't just capacity building, but it was actually security work. You know, I was traveling to the Iranian border to help, you know, the Afghan customs police generate income for, for their country. And most of their, you know, income was foreign aid. And so this was an opportunity for me to help them stand up on their own two feet. And so, you know, when it was all said and done, heck, we had 27, 30 you know, border patrol agents, customs, TSA, you know, everybody contributing 
to the success uh, that we had in Afghanistan. Uh, there's a lot of work to, that still needs to go on, but that's across the board. Uh, South America, Central America, we have some really good projects ongoing down there. And so you'll see those vacancy announcements come open. Please, I'm going to encourage uh, our teammates, put in for them. You'll never know. And the complexities of the job that you're that you're doing. I mean, you'll never get a chance to really reach that level. You're working with the State Department, or in your case, the combatant commander in a, in a war zone, and you're making these, uh, you're building these relationships, building these coalitions with uh, with other countries, uh, foreign entities that actually help the country in that particular region. One of the jobs that uh, that, that I did when I, in Iraq. And it was funny because, you know, we would train the Iraqi border police and we would take them out and show them how to do border patrol work. And the idea was to keep the insurgents and the weapons from being able to come in and fight our troops, hopefully stopping them at the border. But for the Iraqi border police, it was interesting. They were more interested in seizing things that were leaving the country yeah. because of the financial loss it meant for the country. And they would, they would seize a herd of sheep. Well, that particular border fort would get to uh, keep a section of it, and that was their food. That's what they got to eat. So their uh, their priorities were completely different, and learning how to understand that and, and build those relationships and work together, there's just no other experience like it. No, you're right. I can remember uh, I'm going out to the Afghan-Pakistan border, and uh, my teammates, we're going to run some operations, checkpoint operations, and, and one of the contractors says, hey, uh, sir, you want to— check out this camel train and i'm thinking oh it's you know a bunch of folks carrying something back and forth no it was literal camels coming across the border with tvs and and like you described all kinds of goods and i'm like well that's why we're not making any money because they're circumventing the ports Mm -hmm. of entries and stuff like that so yeah you've got to secure your border you know bp 101 and uh, you're right the complexity that goes on and these countries that have existed for you know thousands of years, it's it's interesting to see how we as an organization can influence that. Absolutely. And so you you did at least a couple years uh, in in, yeah. in that area, and you came back and you jumped right into the, uh, the the frying pan, so to speak, and you went to headquarters, and you were the uh, the, the deputy chief for law enforcement programs in, in the operations division. So you didn't exactly throttle back. No, you know what? I can recall Chief Fisher and Chief Vitello at the time were the chief and the deputy, and they called me up in Afghanistan. It was like in the middle of the night, and actually their adjutant called me up and said, hey, uh, uh, the chief wants to talk to you, and uh, do you have time? I'm like, it's the chief. What am I going to say? No. You know, and so uh, I take their phone call, and they're like, hey, uh, Chief uh, or, or Mr. Ortiz, we want to offer you a position as a, a chief of Northern and Coastal Border Operations. And I thought, okay, I'm going from a chief in the field to three years doing Afghanistan work to the chief of Northern and Coastal Border Operations, which I know nothing about because <laughs> I've spent my whole career on the Southwest border. Uh, I can do this with 100% confidence. And so uh, in my period of transition out of Afghanistan, to headquarters, we restructured the operations division to one division, and I became the deputy of operational programs. And I thought, man, I didn't even take, I didn't even EOD in the job, and I got demoted. <laughs> but it was uh, probably one of the best experiences of my career. I was able to work with uh, Chief Kevin Oaks as the chief of operations, and Deputy Chief Felix Chavez was the chief of ops. And uh, I'll tell a quick 
Felix Chavez to anybody uh, who's out there. Felix Chavez and I sort of grew up in the organization. He had about four or five years on me, but we promoted about the same time in different positions. And, uh, you know, I really, you know, look at, at Felix as a mentor and somebody who, you know, really – when you worked with Felix, you knew exactly where you stood. And so as uh, I arrived at headquarters, I thought, well, our management and leadership styles may, you know, conflict a little bit and, and certainly may run counter to a productive op- operations program. But it couldn't have been further from the truth. He and I sat down as peers and uh, we would hash it out and come up with a resolution uh, 99% of the time. And I can tell you, I'd, I probably, you know, to this day have not had a better partner than I did when, when Felix Chavez and I were up at headquarters. But, you know, I certainly immediately after that transitioned into that ops uh, deputy position. And boy, that was nonstop. We were working 13, 14 hour days, sometimes six, seven days a week. It'll wear you out. So after you do that, and so you have a good perspective, not only globally, but now inside the beltway, and you kind of know what the headquarters element is doing every day to try and make sure the men and women had the things that they need. So it's time to hit the field. And you go to none other than the Rio Grande Valley sector and uh, deputy chief for originally Rosendo Inahosa, a great guy, great chief. The uh, little did you know what RGV was going to turn into. Well, I thought I was going to South Padre Island, but I ended (laughs) up going to RGV. Yeah, they they switched the map up on me. It was a little snafu there. No, you know what? I, I was excited to go down there. Uh, my brother, who was a DPS trooper for 30 years, started his career down there. And I can recall going down there and seeing all the experiences and everything that happened in, in South Texas and thinking that, man, it's probably a pretty good place to work. And so when I got down there in 2013, I was a deputy for about a month and a half, and then Chief Hinojosa retired. I became the acting chief. And about February, we got really busy. And every day I watched the numbers, and they kept going up. And I'm like, okay, at some point this has got to stop. And it didn't. It All the way up until about March, and, and then they they named Chief Oaks as going to be the incoming chief in April. Man, I'm like, man, you got to hurry, man. I, I need some help. But, you know, we you were down there uh, with us as, as our uh, – I think you were the PIC of SOD when yep, I got yep. down there. Mm-hmm. And then you came the PIC of Rio Grande City. And so having folks like yourself and, and some of the other PICs, and I can name them all, I mean, it just, we, we had a tremendous team. Well, and this is the part that uh, I think you are uniquely situated to kind of talk about a little bit. Nobody really understands what it's like unless you've been in this uniform and, and you've been in that situation where you're, yes, we, we are overcrowded. We have people pouring out in the Sally Ports. The, the, the jail cells are overflowing and we're trying to get, uh, you know, food to everybody. And you see the agents, you know, changing diapers and, and taking the kids out in the Southport and letting them play soccer. And, but the level of frustration, because you're, you're looking around and you're trying to do the best you can with this situation, and nobody seems to be helping to solve the yeah. problem. And that seems to have been something that has recurred time and time again. Border Patrol, being a frontline agency, does not have the option to say, no, we're not going to deal with this. We have to deal with it. But then we depend on others on the back end to take up the slack and move forward. When that doesn't happen, it's very frustrating. No, you're right. It is frustrating. But, you know, the, the resiliency of the Border Patrol agent, I think if we go back and start testing DNA, you're going to find that there's something in a Border Patrol agent's DNA that just 
doesn't allow them to stop or doesn't allow them to say, no, I can't do that. And so, um, you know, as I was the, and I was the acting chief, I think three times when I was down there. And of course, in the, when I wasn't the acting chief, I was a deputy chief. And so I, my big responsibility was running the ops piece of it. And uh, I can tell you that from my perspective, I thought my job was to advocate for all the men and women down there, whether you were a mechanic, whether you were a Lika, whether you were a board choice, you know, my, my job was to advocate for you. My job was to be part of the community, be out there. I had to be out there in the community and was messaging, telling our story. I, I tell people the most important aspect of our successes between my time in RGV 2013 to when I left in 2019 was our ability to tell our story. Nobody told it better than us. And so as long as we were continuing to get the truth about what was happening, it influenced policy. It influenced, I'll tell this quick story, Chief. I remember we were dealing with, uh, you know, the humanitarian crisis. Some people were calling it the border crisis. And at the time, uh, my my adjutant was Robert Rodriguez, just a great agent, just salt of the earth. And we were leaving a meeting, and I uh, was heading someplace else, maybe going out to the field. I said, you know, Robert, this ain't a humanitarian board. This is a policy crisis. That's what it is. I said, you know what, I'm going to start inserting that into my briefings when I'm briefing these senators and congressmen and different folks, and hopefully it'll stick. And so I did. I wove it into all these conversations and briefings. And about a month or two later, and I don't like to admit this, but I went and grabbed a breakfast taco somewhere, some coffee, <laughs> and we were walking out. And on the front page of the McAllen Monitor, it said, uh, policy crisis. And he pointed at me, he goes, you did it. And I said, yeah, look, we did it. But really, that's what it was. It was really doing everything we could to make sure that the men and women, whether it was through you know, the media, through a news story, or even through our own actions, being able to go out there and, and have the frontline agents see that you knew what was happening, I think that was important. And, and I felt like I'd left everything I had out in the field when I was down there. And at the end of the day, it's all we can we can hope for. Yeah. Trying to make the biggest difference we can. And yeah. I remember during that time, and I think if I if memory serves, at our high point, we were holding over five thousand people in custody at even, any given time. That's just at one sector out of twenty in the United States Border Patrol. Yeah, Chief Oaks. I remember it was May of uh, twenty thirteen, and he calls me up, and it was around I want to say Mother's Day or something like that. And he goes, how many people do we have in custody? This was before we had, you know, all the automation and dashboards that we have now. And I said, well, we have about 5,300 and something. I said, but we have a few more on buses, but we're just moving them around the sector. They're not at a station, so we're not really counting those. And he goes, this, we're broken. I said, yeah, we're 100% broken. But, you know, I said, we're maintaining what we can you know, we haven't lost the line completely. And so, you know, it does get to a tipping point in, in every situation, every crisis. And I really do think that was about our tipping point. And then we started to get some other agencies step up to the plate and come in and help us. And that kind of it speaks to the fact that this is an entire system of which we are a part. And every piece in that system needs to be able to perform and function. We need to enable it to perform yeah. and function to be able to have to address a crisis like that. And safe to say that 
there's going to be another crisis on the horizon, and it, it, it's always going to be the case in the future. No, you're right. I mean, right now, our, our agents over the last 10 days have apprehended over 3,000 agents or aliens every day. Uh, we've, I mean, yesterday we had over 1,000 gotaways along the southwest border. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're getting to that point where we're going to start to see average of 3,500, then 4,000 a day. And fortunately, we're able to leverage Title 42 and we're able to do some things uh, with with some pathways so we're not having to bring all these folks into our station. But that can't last forever. And so we have to be good at what we do. We have to have built processes. We have to have systems in place. We have to, you know, technology, leverage technology. We've learned to do things now. We hold virtual musters and mm-hmm. share information and intelligence virtually. We're, you know, leveraging TAC. We're leveraging TSM. So, I mean, the Border Patrol agents now certainly got to be a whole lot smarter than uh, Chief Owens and Chief Ortiz were Amen. when we came in. Amen. It, you know, when, when I think certainly when you were out in the field and, and, and when I was too, Mostly what you dealt with was uh, people from Mexico, yeah. uh, single adult males was the predominant uh, population that came across. And I think what a lot of people don't realize or don't think about is now it is a much more diverse population. Take, for example, when you were in Del Rio, you were catching people from African countries. You were catching people yeah. from, uh, uh, you know, you name it, uh, from Asia. You, People don't think about it and whenever when it gets said, you know, CBP will arrest people from a hundred and some odd countries. Fifty eight last year and probably gonna hit hundred and sixty something this year. And and you're right. Whether it's Haitians, whether folks from the DRC, whether it's, you know, um, folks from Yemen, you know, Syria, you name it. And so our ability to be vigilant out there is gotta be at the top of our priority list. And so our Border Patrol agents, it's real easy to sit there and say, hey, you know, we're apprehending folks from Central America. Well, no, they're not just folks from Central America. You've got folks from East Asia, from you name it, you know, slipping through the cracks. Those thousand, who were those thousand that got away from us day for yesterday? Mm-hmm. We've got to be concerned about that. The narcotics, methamphetamine, fentanyl, it's no longer big bulks marijuana it's you know deep concealment methods it's you know folks that are leveraging kids to drive narcotics or body carriers or cavity carriers on and on and on so the complexity of the job has been elevated to a point now where we have to do we're training i think is probably the foundation is going to be the foundation of our success so if a border patrol agent can't come out of the academy and know how to search and, and, and interview and identify those bad actors out there right away, we're going to be in a tough position. So I, I do think that the fact that our national security mission is so much different than it was when we first started is, I think, going to continue to, to really evolve. We're going to see, I think, border security even change uh, more so with, you know, UAS systems, tunnels. I mean, we got threats that are coming right at us. We got threats underneath us, threats above us. The threats are everywhere. In the conversation about, uh, you know, wall or technology, training as a force multiplier for a workforce is often one that gets easily overlooked in the conversation, but it's critical. No, you're right. Uh, Chief Scott and I have both committed to doing everything we can to make sure that we're providing, one, the best training, and really the, the best 
doctrine. Uh, Chief Scott and I were part of a working group several years back that talked about developing doctrine for the Border Patrol because we wanted to memorialize everything that we do. And so that way the Border Patrol agent doesn't have to guess how I pull over a vehicle or how I search a vehicle or how I run a light LPR system. And so um, we have, I think, established some IOPs and some processes on some things, and we're going to continue to build on that. Uh, we've got our strategic policy and analysis division up at headquarters, 100% focused on trying to make sure that we have doctrine. When I leave this outfit, I want to be able to say we published some doctrine uh, and that we're going to be uh, much more foundational as an organization than we were you know, when I arrived. Absolutely. And Going back to how important training is and helping shape our capabilities in an evolving environment, one of the things that we've seen within the different uh, populations in our, in our uh, detainees, a lot of sensitive uh, categories. You have unaccompanied children, you have, uh, you have family units, you have uh, women that are exposed to being exploited you know, sexually, uh, you have assaults taking place all the time by, by the smugglers who are bringing them across. And, and so our ability to not only you know, interdict people coming across the border illegally, but also to care for those populations has become ever more present as we evolve as an, as an agency. And one of the things that uh, the Border Patrol has identified the need for is a, a different work group that uh, specializes in that very thing and in, in, in taking care of the detainees once they're in custody. And I'm talking about, of course, the Border Patrol Processing Coordinator. We've got the first class on the ground right now, and we've put some things out on social media from the academy about this uh, this class and and kind of what it entails. Talk to us a little bit about what the duties are. What's the expectation? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of questions out there. Yeah. So uh, let me back up to 2013 when I arrived in RGV. One of the things that we realized right right, right off the bat is that you almost had two different mission sets. You had what was going on out in the field, this operational mission set, and then you had this operation that was going on behind the scenes. And we call it TEDS, right? Transportation, you know, all the detention modules, everything that we do to support um, the, the movement and the, and, and the detain, detaining of individuals. And so um, we set up a whole command structure. In RGV, and this has sort of been duplicated across the southwest border at most of the sectors. And so as we started to become better at that, we started to recognize that, you know, well, maybe we don't need to send a Border Patrol agent to the academy for 117 days to come in and do that mission set. Perhaps maybe we can come up with a position description that will be able to occupy and do those things that are important to the organization, yet allow us to put Border Patrol agents back out on the front line. So certainly we came up with the processing coordinators. We worked with the executive team and the training uh, uh, department to come up uh, with, with this program. And to me, when you look at everything that they're going to go through and the value that they're going to add, to sectors that are already overwhelmed, like Rio Grande Valley and El Paso, to start off with, I think you're going to, I mean, the return on investment is going to be huge. Uh, I had a chance, and thank you, Chief, for allowing me to visit with, the, you know, the first class of, of processing coordinators. And you can see the enthusiasm and the excitement. And, and I think they're just really excited to be part of something bigger than probably what they were uh, doing in their previous occupation or education. And so um, 
Our ability to weave these processing coordinators into our mission set is going to be important, but it's going to allow us to take advantage of you know, ensuring that we have some integrity in our frontline operations. And you already hit on one of the things and that it's uh, one of the things it's designed to do is to get our agents back out on patrol doing the job that they were hired to do. Yeah. Let's talk about, let me run down some of the questions to kind of make clear once and for all. So most of us that, that were around long enough to remember the old detention enforcement officer, DEO, uh, that is not what this is. No, it's not. Never intended to be. No. These folks are coming in as GS5, GS6s they are not going to be doing all the processing because there are certain things that can only be done by Border Patrol agents. They are going to be helping the Border Patrol agents do certain aspects of the processing. Yeah, so certainly I think when you think about enrolling uh, individuals into our systems, being able to put A-files together, being able to transport or move people, you know, uh, I mean, on any given day, we may have 100 people uh, conducting hospital watch. You know, this is going to allow us to, to leverage these uh, processing coordinators in positions that typically, you know, a Border Patrol agent is having to wear, wear multiple hats. And now we can be start fine-tuning our mission set to where, okay, these duties and responsibilities can be handled by processing coordinators, and Border Patrol agents can focus on these duties and responsibilities. And so really it is going to allow us to rack and stack what happens behind the scenes in the uh, back end of our processing enterprise. So some of the things that uh, that are duties inherent to a Border Patrol agent, the taking of sworn statements and the like, that's not going to change. No. So we're still going to have Border Patrol agents in the processing center, just not as many. Yeah, so Border Patrol agents are still going to need to debrief smugglers. They're still going to need to interview, you know, victims uh, of, you know, different events that happen out there in the field. Uh, they're still going to have to write casework. So there's going to be an aspect that the processing coordinators aren't going to be able to fulfill, but there's certainly going to be, I think, a, a slew of duties and responsibilities that they're going to be able to step right in and, and take over for us, and that's going to be huge. And that creates the side-by-side working environment where you, instead of having 10 Border Patrol agents in a processing center, and I'm just making up a number, yeah. now maybe you have two with eight processing coordinators, and you have those eight agents now back out in the field. Yeah, and one of the things that's exactly right, one of the things I want to stress is this, it's, it's, it's not, hey... I'm a board trade agent, so uh, you know, I'm a higher echelon employee within the – that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about one team, one family, you know, uh, everybody's going to be working for the board patrol. And so I'm hoping that when uh, our processing coordinators graduate, they're not going to come say, well, what do you do? Well, I process for – no. I'm with the Border Patrol. That's what I want them to say. You want them taking ownership, but just do. like we do. They're part of this organization, yeah. doing a different job. Well, of course, the hope is that at least some of them look at it and say, you know what, I might want to put that uniform on one day. Yeah, most definitely. We're going to use this as a recruiting tool any chance we can. And these are these are term positions, so up to four years and, and no more. So it's not meant to have a, a, a lifetime GS5 or 6. This is an entry-level position that uh, that helps us accomplish this task and hopefully gets their foot in the door as a government employee where they can move up and on to something. Yeah, better. certainly there's an expectation that, um, one, that happens, and then, two, that – they come in and look at how we do business and hopefully change some of that, you know, provide us ideas and, and, and bring some of that ingenuity. Because when you, I looked at the class this morning, excuse me, quite a few of them seem fairly young. 
And, and you and I both know technology to a young person is the key to everything. So I really am excited to see them out there, uh, you know, integrated into what we're doing because we can certainly use the help. And you hit on a little bit earlier about uh, going back to 2013, but this was this was a very much a team effort with our congressional partners with. Uh, with DHS, uh, you you name it, all up and down, uh, up and down the aisle to make this happen, and it was it was years in the making to get a position description identified, approved, and written, and funded, and now get the curriculum developed. And here we have an eight week academy here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy where they're doing blocks of similar things: firearms, driving, Spanish, law, but to a lesser degree than what an agent goes through. It's not a basic training where there's stress inoculation. But it is absolutely something that uh, they need to have those skills because they're going to be hands-on with the detainees. But more than that, they're getting trained in how to properly take care of uh, these detainees the right way when they're in our custody. Yeah, no, I mean, we used to talk about this all the time. You know, if you go to any major sheriff's department, when when you first join that sheriff's department, quite often you'll spend your first two or three years uh, in uh, a major detention facility before you're able to make it out on the street. Our intent is hopefully to see sort of that same process develop uh, within the Border Patrol. But, yeah, I do agree that, you know, this was something, when we talk about defunding the police, you know, Border Patrol was defunded when, when I was in headquarters the first time. It's 21370 We're at 19600 and change. Uh, and so we're already doing, you know, as much as we possibly can with the amount of agents we have out there on the front line. So us being able to augment those duties and responsibilities with a position like the processing coordinator, that's a game changer. It really is a game changer. So I'm excited. Good, good. So that's coming, and we're going to have supposedly, if we if all goes well, if COVID doesn't interfere, we'll get up to 300 trained this year, and we'll do 300 the next few years to get a total of 1,200 right now is the plan, and then try and maintain that number. So we'll have 1,200 deployed across the, the various southwest border sectors. I think El Paso and Rio Grande Valley are the first two sectors that are going to be getting them, uh, half and half of this first class. So they should each be in around 20, 25 or so, depending on how many graduate. So we'll see what that looks like when they get out there. Yeah, excited. Good. So talk about you being the deputy chief. So you've been the chief of Del Rio Sector. You spent a long time in Rio Grande Valley as the acting chief and the deputy chief. Describe for us what it's like to have to go back inside that beltway mm-hmm. and be the deputy chief of the entire organization. Anybody that's been out in the field is going to know it's not a fun transition by comparison. Everybody would like to be in the field. It's what we were hired to do. We're Border Patrol agents after all. Tell us about what life's like is in that role. Well, thank you uh, for asking that question because I don't know that I get specifically asked that question. I will tell you that anybody who knows me or has worked around me knows that I really uh, enjoy being out there with, with the men and women of this outfit. I love going out in the field. I still love the chase. Uh, I, I love opening up my own gates and, and you know, getting dirty any chance I, I can. And so um, let me back up a little bit. So I'm the chief of Del Rio Sector, my hometown. Uh, my mother, who lives in Del Rio, is by herself. So I'm able to move back to Del Rio and help take care of her. I'm like, I'm done. You know, I, I'm I'm. This is it. Happy, yeah. Uh, this is a pinnacle of anybody's career to be able to go back as a chief of their hometown. And, you know, I did that for, you know, a little less than a year. And I went up to headquarters for a meeting, and 
Chief Scott, who was the acting deputy at the time, uh, pulled me aside with Chief Provost and said, hey, listen, uh, we'd like to, you know, have you consider maybe coming up here as the deputy chief you're interested in. I said, whoa, hadn't thought about that one. I'm, you know, pretty happy in Del Rio. Uh, I'll do it on a couple of conditions, and, and one of them was uh, I don't, I didn't really want to be the chief. I, I was comfortable with being the deputy chief, and I'll do it if, and I looked at Chief Scott, if you're going to be the chief. And uh, he said, yeah, I think so. I said, all right. Well, let me know how it goes, and, and if the folks who need to sign off on something like that sign off on it, I'll certainly, I'll come up. And, and I did it for a couple of reasons, Chief. One, uh, Chief Scott and I grew, grew up in the outfit at the same time. I think I came in in 91. He came in in 92. But we both started in San Diego. He was in Imperial Beach, and I was at Chula Vista. And anybody who knows the Chula Vista IB days back in the day, those stations were always competing with each other. IB was the busiest place in the country, but we said that, you know, we were the busiest because we had to go to IB to help them. And so, <laughs> um, you know, going up to headquarters and having been – had an opportunity to work with Chief Scott on a couple of initiatives throughout the years. I thought, we may make a pretty good team because he knows Arizona because he was in Arizona. He knows El Centro and San Diego. And, of course, I know San Diego, but I know San Diego is a frontline agent. My whole leadership time was really in Campo and in South Texas. In Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, you know, this may be a good merging of uh, portfolios that I think we probably should – should make a pretty good team. And so uh, when I went up there, uh, I, I went up there with some reservation because it was going to be an adjustment in my personal life, but I also went up there with uh, a lot of hope and, and excitement because you know, I had tremendous support from my family. You know, I, I, I took my significant other and her, her boys up there. I took, you know, um, uh, my kids were grown, but they, they were very supportive. And I said, this is going to, this is going to take everything I have to do this, but I think it's something I can do. And so I went up there, and one of the first things the chief and I sat down and said, hey, let's look at the things that we're doing and figure out a way that, that we can improve and build an, a, a process. And, and so come up with some priorities. Let's, let's figure out how we do business, and let's establish – um, some IOPs on how we hire people, uh, how we do run operations out in the field. And so, like most leaders, I have a whiteboard in my office. And this whiteboard has a slew of things on there from a facility strategy to training and recruitment. Uh, and so, I've got names next to each one of those, and people will come in and take pictures, okay, because it'll adjust. Some things will finish, and some things they're enduring. And so for me, you know, being the deputy chief, I look at my role. I'm not the face of the outfit, um, but my job is to be an advisor to the chief of the Border Patrol and the commissioner and others, but also to advocate based upon all those experiences that I had out in the field to make sure that we're resourcing the men and women out there. And so I spend probably 75% of my time on that. And then another 25% on asking questions uh, as to why, what is happening in the field, and what are we doing about that? How do we get better at that? And so, um, you know, my days are, you know, sometimes long, sometimes my weeks are long, but 
like I said earlier, I mean, we've got a tremendous team. And it isn't one person's carrying 90% of the weight. We're able to share this, and we bounce. The, the, the chief has established this system where we have an e-board now. I mean, I would have never thought in a million years that we as an organization would be voting on decisions that we're going to make as an organization. But that's how we do business now. We have regular uh, um, uh, VTCs with the field on a weekly basis to talk about issues that are happening out there. And, and on top of all of that, uh, it isn't uncommon for the chief or myself or you know the chief of operations or wh whoever to call a field chief and say, hey, how's it going? What do you need? What can we do for you? And so uh, I can recall when I was the deputy or the chief, the only time I got a phone call sometimes is because I did something wrong. <laughs> I don't want that to be the case. I want to call you when you do something right. It's so um, I think the environment has changed a little bit with COVID. It's forced us to be a little more dependent on technology. And, and so we have teams meetings all the time. Uh, I'm not a big AWS, a telework folk, uh, individual. And the folks in Rio Grande Valley, they know that because I used to fight them all the time. We're never going to have that here. Guess what? We got 90-plus percent of our personnel teleworking in AWS. And back at you, Chief Ortiz, we won this one. No, but you know what? I think what we found is that we can be efficient as an outfit and still allow people to have a work-life balance. I don't know what normal is going to look like when this is all said and done. It's not going to look like what it looked like before March, but it's probably not going to look like what it, what what we see now. And so we'll have to make some adjustments, but there'll be I think there'll be positive adjustments. Um, as a deputy chief, I feel like uh, I'm empowered to be able to make some decisions. I, I really appreciate that from Chief Scott and and, and the leadership team uh, within CVP and DHS. I mean, yeah, everybody's got a boss. But I think over the last almost year that I've been up there, we've already made a, a significant impact on, on this outfit. And, and hopefully, you know, when it's all said and done, I can reflect back. And the next person who's sitting in that chair, they're going to sit there and say, man, I got some shoes to fill. I'm not saying they're big shoes, but I got some shoes to fill <laughs> nonetheless because we're busy. Well, if anybody that saw you at the State of the Union address probably feels like they've got some big shoes. And it kind of goes to, I wouldn't be so sure that you're – not the face of the organization, because a lot of yeah. people saw your face representing us uh, yeah. there. That had to have been one of the highlights of your career to be able to uh, participate and, and be there for something so historic as a country every time that happens. How was that? No, you're right. It was. It was a tremendous experience and an honor. Um, I can recall we were in San Antonio at a Chiefs conference, mm -hmm. and uh, Chief Scott came up to me, and they, they had already told me that, you know, I was going to be the deputy chief, but it wasn't formally announced yet. And uh, he says, hey, uh, you're going to get a call from the White House. And, you know, I don't know what it's about, but make sure you take it. And so, of course, I get a call, <laughs> 202 number, and I answer it. And I said, yeah, can I help you? And she says, I'm so, Brittany, uh, I'm, this is from the White House. Uh, you're being invited to the State of the Union. Uh, you'll be getting some emails, but you can't tell nobody. And I said, I can't tell anybody? <laughs> And they said, well, no, what part of you can't tell nobody do you not understand? I said, all right. And so uh, I hung up the phone, and Chief Scott, I see him a little bit later, go, what was the call? But I can't tell nobody. <laughs> and so uh, about a week goes by, and then finally, you know, you can't really say anything till they announce it formally. And I'm announced as one of uh, the guests at, at the State of the Union. And, and I'll be honest with you, initially um, – 
I wasn't thinking it was as big a deal as I thought it was because, you know, I, I had, as I mentioned before, some tremendous experience. I'd been recognized by President Obama back in the day. I mean, I've had, you know, pictures and I've traveled overseas with secretaries and other dignitaries. And so it, it was a big deal, but I guess it, I really didn't comprehend what it meant to, to my family, to me, and perhaps maybe even to the organization. But as the dates got closer, um, it was initially just going to be my son and I. We're just going to go up there, sort of guy's trip. And then uh, my daughter said, well, I'd like to go. And I said, okay, <laughs> well, all right, let me ask. I said, hey, uh, can my daughter and my son-in-law and her kids go? And they're like, yeah, that's fine. You know, we just have to do all the clearance. I said, okay, that's cool. And then, of course, significant other, hey, uh, I'd like to go. I said, all right, let me ask. And so we coordinated all that. And before you know it, you know, like typical South Texas Hispanic family, we got the whole entourage <laughs> going to Washington, D.C. But I wasn't feeling good. I was under the weather, and I think I had COVID at the time. <laughs> I really did feel like, I mean, I felt really, really bad. And I got te- not tested for COVID, but for bronchitis and some other things, and it was came back negative. I went up there, and uh, I'll tell you what, the um, hospitality, the respect that was demonstrated by the White House, the folks in Congress, everybody I experienced, the other guests, was just amazing. It really was. It was uh, a two-day event. I did some interviews one day, and the next day, of course, was an all-day event, sort of like coming to the academy. You know, you spend all day, and uh, we did a, a state, of, of course, the State of the Union address was at night, and I remember sitting there uh, behind Rush Limbaugh and, uh, as he's getting, and I don't know what they're going to say, because they just asked for information over the last couple weeks, and so when the president starts talking about border security and everybody starts pointing at me, you know, and I, and I stand up, then it dawned on me. Wow. Overwhelming. Yeah. No, most definitely. It was overwhelming. It was, you know, an emotional roller coaster. And of course, you can't take your phone in there. And so when you leave, my fo- bo- I, both just my phones up. are just blown up. <laughs> It, it, it was sort of like what I told you about earlier in COVID. I said, well, I'm going to respond to every email and text. I wasn't able to do it. And I still have people every once in a while, well, I sent you a text after the State of the Union. You didn't respond. I'm like, sorry. I, you know, I tried. But it was. And it wasn't because it was about me. It was because somebody was recognizing my outfit, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I was just occupying that space. It could have been any of us. But I do think it was important for America to see that, you know, the Border Patrol had gotten scraped up, bruised, uh, um, attacked. Here we were standing strong at the State of the Union address. And I hope that's what, you know, America saw, is that I was proud to be part of that. Well, I know we all saw that. And uh, there was probably thousands of us that were glued, uh, that wear this uniform and, and cheering you on precisely because of what you're saying because then you saw a united states border patrol agent there in that historic chamber with the the joint chiefs with the justices of the supreme court with every member of congress with the president the vice president i mean you name it and there we were because you were there that was i that was a truly truly great moment and i just uh i think it's it's amazing when you look at somebody that comes from del rio texas and starts off in the u.s border patrol works their way up through the ranks 
and there you are representing this. Amazing. No, I agree. Thank you. I appreciate that. So another aspect of that story, you took your family with you. Yeah. That's not a metaphor for this job. I don't know what is. Take your family along. Yeah. So I asked this of, uh, of most of the guests in leadership, the work-life balance issue. We always have to remember that there are others along for this ride with us. They're the ones that are going to be with us when it's over. Those family members, those kids that you dote on as they grow up that have to move around with you. You know, the, uh, the, the loved ones, the significant others that are, that are making this journey. Very special moment for them, but they've sacrificed along the way and deserve that too. Yeah, most definitely. You know, we talk about work-life balance, but in theory, you know, especially as you move up in the South, we're probably the worst practicers uh, of work-life balance. And it really does, you know, come into focus as you get towards the end of your career, which I feel like I'm getting to that point, in that you start to recognize that, man, there, there, there were so many people that stepped aside so you could do what you wanted to do or took on additional duties and responsibilities so you could do what you wanted to do, recognizing how important it was, not just to the country, but to the organization. And so, I man, just I'm so grateful. You know, I, I had very supportive parents. Uh, I, I had, you know, uh, my wife and my kids at the time, early in my career, you know, uh, my, my fiance and her kids later in my career. And then, you know, all of that to me, uh, I think y y you do owe them a debt of gratitude. And, you know, we do need to recognize that as important as our mission is, as important as our job is, it's as important to make sure that you're there for them, you know, that, that, that they know that they can lean on you just like the Border Patrol agents lean on you whenever there is a crisis or a time of need. And so, um, you know, I talk about us being a family as an outfit. I was talking to a sheriff last night in Valverde County, and they were transporting the body of Robert Meyer, who's an OPR agent from Del Rio or from San Antonio to Del Rio because he died of COVID uh, two days ago. And all the law enforcement and family members lined up, lights on, standing, saluting, all these things, right? As he's describing it to me, it's like I'm there. And I said, that's what we're about as an outfit, as community. I mean, and you saw that, you know, sort of manifest itself in Rio Grande Valley, Eagle Pass, Texas, Laredo, Tucson, every place where we either had an agent die or, you know, something happens to one of our own. And so uh, you're right. I mean, work-life balance is awfully, awfully important. I just know it's, it's, it's difficult to achieve, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. That's right. And so whether it's, you know, taking care of yourself physically, uh, certainly taking care of yourself mentally is, you know, as important. Um, and, and then, you know, leaning on your Border Patrol agents, you know, when you need something or leaning on your family members when you need something. Don't think that you got to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders all the time. And I fortunately have not had to feel that because I do have a good support system in place. I got great friends and I got great family. Sure do. Sure do. Last thing I want to talk to you about, and this is going to go towards the, the, the younger generation of Border Patrol agent. They're experiencing for the first time a change in administration, yeah. and it's a turbulent time no matter which way it goes, and there's always some, some level of uncertainty. But, hey, we work for the United States government, and that's the area that we live in. 
it's business as usual. At the end of the day, our mission does not change. We have a new set of bosses, but that's it. From the uh, standpoint of being in Washington, D.C., the transition to a new administration and the new political appointees, talk to us about that. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that I've taken on in my role as deputy chief is sort of point on all the transition discussions prior to January uh, 20th. And so I uh, was intimately involved in, in having conversations and briefing on what was important to us as an organization and some of the things that we were focused on. And so I will tell you that the new administration was very uh, attentive to the things that we were messaging. Uh, they listened, and, and several of them had previous experiences with CBP and DHS. And so this wasn't uncharted waters. They were around back in 2013 and 2014. So they saw some of those issues that we dealt with back then. And so it wasn't like we were starting from scratch. As we go through an administration change, I think the workforce has to recognize that there is a a change in leadership at, at, at the highest levels. And so with them comes a different perspective on how we're going to manage the border, how we're going to conduct business on a day-to-day basis. But as you described, our mission set is inscribed in law, right? We've got a nationality act. We've got, you know, policies and directives. And so it isn't, we're not turning a battleship 180 degrees. Are we going to make some adjustments? Yes. There will be adjustments within the Border Patrol uh, um, infrastructure, how we do business, and, and how we operate out there. But you know, our job is continue to stay focused on, on what's most important, right? Maintaining some integrity out on, on, on that front line, making sure that we process the individuals that we encounter with humanity, making sure that we're good stewards of the public's resources. You know, the chief and, and I, we talked about the strategy, and I'm sure he touched on this when he was here, but he's got three goals, right? Stakeholder engagement, um, you know, operational control, and organizational excellence. And it's, you know, controlling the board, organizational excellence, stakeholder engagement. The most important one to, to, to the chief and I are organizational excellence. That's what we're going to demonstrate through this transition and moving forward is that in everything that we do, we're not just going to have honor first, we're going to have honor always. And, and so I think that uh, if Chief Scott can epitomize that, myself as a deputy, and the youngest Border Patrol agent going through the ranks right now can demonstrate that everybody in between should be able to follow suit. And so we will adjust accordingly, and we will ensure that um, we take care of our communities, and, and the rest of America is going to sleep well at night, knowing that we have men and women that are willing to sacrifice you know, for, for their security and their safety. And, and as long as when we have these conversations with our young Border Patrol agents that they recognize that's what's happening, then I think we're going to be just fine. I do, too. Very well said. And any last message you want to give to those men and women? Yeah. So f- f- from my perspective to you, thank you. You know, we, c- we can't say enough about what the, the men and women of this outfit do each and every day. And if I could get out there and shake every single one of their hands and say, Uh, I appreciate the job you're doing. I would love to be able to do that. Um, But as I've already demonstrated, my capacity is limited. I will tell you that uh, I'm excited about where this outfit is going. I really am. I think we've got great leadership. 
Uh, we've got uh, great support from our communities, and we need to take advantage of that. So uh, thank you for having me, Chief. This has been a pleasure, and I look forward to the next six hours of our day. <laughs> Deputy Chief Ortiz, thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure having you, and hopefully we've been able to, to show you some, some things that are different from 30 years ago at the yeah, Academy. Most definitely. Right. That's going to do it from here, ladies and gentlemen, for another episode of What's Important Now. Until we talk again soon, stay safe out there and honor first.